You're very welcome to the Fun and Fast Cup podcast. I'm your host, Shane Darby. With the 151st Open Championship just around the corner, I was motivated to learn a bit more about the evolution of the golf course at Hoylake, which is the second oldest golf club in England. Joe McDonald, member at Hoylake for over 30 years, joined me for a proper geek out on how Royal Liverpool has evolved since 1869, when a nine-hole course was initially laid out by Robert Chambers and George Morris. We cover many of the historical developments from the beginning of the club's history, to the preparations for the upcoming Open, which will see the course hosting the event for the 13th time. Thanks to Joe for his time, and Savant like the call of detail. Bizarrely, he did it without any notes. Many thanks to you for tuning in. Most importantly, enjoy the coverage and live experience of the event. It's going to be a great one. Go easy. Hey, Joe. How are you? Hi, Shane. I'm very well. Very well. Thank you. Thank you very much for joining us today. Most welcome. Maybe to get going, obviously we're here to have a chat about the 151st Open host, Royal Liverpool mm. Golf Club. Saw mm. some pictures of the course recently. Obviously we've had some pretty decent weather. It's changed a little bit of late, but the mm-hmm. course was looking pretty toasty. How, mm. has, uh, how has the summer been for Mr. Bledge and his uh, merry band of greenkeepers? Unpredictable, I would say. Don't want to speak too much on his behalf, but I think uh, quite unpredictable. Um, we had that very, very dry period where the course was was definitely toasting, as you say. Um, I think the difficulty he has is, um, obviously we have sprinklers, but the challenge was, is trying to not have it look too patchy and mottled um, and keep control of what's watered and what's not. Um, yeah, I, I think it's going to be a difficult one for him because the, the weather is very changeable at the moment. We've got warmth, but we've also got a lot of rain recently. So I think uh, he'll just be looking to try and get a um, consistent looking colour, I think. Even though that doesn't, we know it doesn't mean anything. I think for his for his peace of mind, I think he wants it to look as attractive as possible. Why wouldn't you? Exactly. I guess the chances are we're not going to have a replica of the old course last year. No, it's not looking that way, is it? I think we're a bit late in the day to suddenly start browning out completely. Uh, so, yeah, so I think it's going to be, um, you know, not soft by any means, but I, I think it's not going to be 2014 conditions, nor is it going to be 2006 conditions. So somewhere in the middle. Well, maybe if we, uh, for, for those uninitiated that are, list, are, that are listening and are uninitiated, needless to say, who the hell is Joe McDonald and why are you here? I should ask you, why Why am I here? Um, I am Joe McDonnell and I'm a lifelong member of Hoylake and a golf geek. Uh, very happy to hold my hand up and say that. And um, I got into golf in a full-time capacity at the start of this year, having uh, having come into it through sheer love of the sport uh, about sort of four or five years ago. And um, I had dabbled in the, the, the dark arts of commercial side of golf for for those few years and then finally took the leap out of my previous role which was within software so i and i am a professional within the golf industry so there we go excellent well you're head of imagery amongst other things for clayton de Vries and punt mm-hmm. um what does that entail i mean certainly people will have seen some of your renderings and 
artistic impressions of various holes at Royal Liverpool and farther afield. Um, it's uh, it's it's pretty stunning in terms of the the, the end product that you come up with. Um, how did you get into that? Thanks, Shane. Um, I, it was a happy accident. I was experimenting with different techniques to show ideas uh, to capture whether it's a, an idea or some form of evolution. I'm particularly interested in evolutions of courses. Um, I had, I've always been into maps. I've been a real map guy for as long as I can remember. And also massively into landscapes, really intrigued by cool landscapes and, and sort of earth moving and stuff. And, um, and I think it was just a combination of, of uh, trial and error, really. It was, um, it was just going down a bit of a rabbit hole with techniques and uh, different bits of visualization. And then the whole thing came together in this cocktail of, uh, you know, trying to merge beauty, um, something that looked different, uh, but also captured the soul and the essence of the, the courses that I was working on. Um, not all courses are blessed with interesting topography, um, but the, the ones that I find most interesting and are like Hoylake and the old course and, and places that have either micro or macro contour, but certainly some interest in the land. And they just they just work so well in the technique that I use, which is a mixture of 3D um, Photoshop uh, QGIS I use, which is a, uh, a mapping and, and sort of point cloud manipulation tool. Um, all of these are <laughs> incredibly boring scientific terms for basically terrain modeling. So, uh, for those that uh, that didn't understand a word you were saying there, <laughs> uh, I guess maybe a good analogy to use is uh, what Renaissance Design uh, have done for the Lido project in Sand Valley in Wisconsin. They presumably would have used some of the same techniques, sir. Uh, uh, Brian Zegler and uh, was mm. there some other fella? Uh, uh, yes, Peter, Peter Flory. Flory. Yeah. Yeah. So Peter would have um, uh, he he will have sculpted the the surfaces in accordance with the um, with the photos that he was finding and the research that he was doing. So <clears throat> within the video game, it uh, you know it gives you shortcuts really to to working with uh, landscapes for golf. You know, obviously uh, they've created a very powerful engine for you to go and sculpt these courses. Um, uh, somebody's worked out a way to import existing landscape data into the into the uh, program, which you can then use as your starting point. Um, but Peter obviously has dedicated a huge number of hours to to working on this course and has ported it from uh, version to version getting newer and newer and making it better and better and uh you know I, we all know the story I, I presume lots of people listening to this will have will have heard peter speak about it and brian zegler and tom doak and brian schneider and they uh, they took what was a computer game model which had been uh, sort of mesh molded um and then exported it into um uh, contour lines and those contour lines were then used by the uh, the shapers to move the the dirt into place um using basically a guide it's a bit like by numbers um it, we we should <clears throat> definitely give a shout out to brian schneider though because this thing is it's not an automated you know let it go and these robots go and build it for you absolutely not the case um brian schneider has been there and has been doing all the sort of finishing and, and true sculpting of the of the course so in no way is this some sort of robot built um you know autonomous robots building this golf course for them anything but but i think it's managed to get all of the sort of macro um earth moving into place beforehand the first time i came across your good self was i think that map that you did for the old course 
some years ago uh, on behalf or in conjunction and in partnership with the Jasper Miners of Evaluate In. Yes. Which was, I think, a work on from what Mackenzie did in the 20s in, uh, in terms of his, his survey of the golf course. Would that be fair? Yes, absolutely. Um, I've been tinkering with some, as I say, techniques. I've just been doing some trial and error, messing around with things that I thought looked interesting and showed a, a story. And Jasper had independently been working on a, a sort of side project uh, himself using Google Earth and pins and trying to pull together all these various sources of um, of information about the old course and the names of the features, pull them into one place. And, uh, and he had this Google Earth map full of pins and names. And he said to me, uh, this is whilst it's interesting to me, nobody else is going to going to be interested in looking at this. Is there any chance you fancy doing something like collaboration where we put it together into something more presentable and uh, you know easy on the eye? And I said, yeah, let's do it. So we did, and that was a bit of fun. And then people started to um, get in touch to say, is this something we can buy? You know. Um, so we thought about it a bit, and it wasn't as straightforward as saying yes. You know, I'll send you a print in the post. It was we, we tried to put some uh, infrastructure around it, and and part of that was was doing a deal with the Lynx Trust, who are you know very careful about who is able to use their trademark terms and, and other things. So so we partnered with them and, and did it officially above board and all that, and um, and yeah, it, it's great. It spun off into um, into sort of a, a nice little. Um, project and we, we did multiple courses working with our friend Sam Cooper who's who's um, the drone pilot and good surveyor so he was he was going to these courses and taking surveys of the of the land and, and getting high resolution aerial imagery and uh, yeah the the three of us plus I should say um, Jasper's wife Karen who looks after the all the e-commerce uh, for evaluating so we four um, have been working together for yeah about four years now and one last plug for uh yourself and, and Sam I believe you have a little sideline of course uh, course guides or course maps or what, what would colloquially be known as stroke savers uh, yes um, yes yeah, strokes oh you can't say stroke saver can you because that's like saying hoover <laughs> um same thing. So uh, yes, no, it, it, it's course guides. I think is the description. Really, um, we, we've always been um. Uh, keen to, when we do these things to move away from uh, sort of a, a cartoonish image littered with um, numbers, you know, huge amounts of numbers and science and maths going on on the page, which uh, these days I, I think I'm right in saying most people will tend to have a some form of watch or yardage range finder uh, and some sort of new technology. So the books feel more and more like they're keepsakes, mementos of a, of a great day rather than they are an actual tool which is used on the course i mean obviously we know it's different for the professional game uh, but for your standard amateur uh, i think part of a package that you would take away from a course would be you know this stuff that you could look at afterwards and just enjoy enjoy what you've just played and studied look at the whole rather than doing maths as i say standing on the fairway and you know pacing things off and such so well i'm one of those weirdos that uh, essentially buys <laughs> the course planner at every golf course. I actually got very upset there recently. I mistakenly left behind my course planner for Royal Hague Golf Club oh, on no. the terrace uh, at Royal Hague. I did send an email to the uh, general manager, uh, Marco Sterkenberg, which he hasn't replied to yet, uh, <laughs> wondering if I could buy another one. Um, anyway, um, 
but we live in hope that I can actually replace that. But fingers yeah. crossed for you. Is your OCD ticking for, first badly? Problems. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Uh, listen, obviously we're, we're here to chat about the evolution of the uh, golf course at uh, Hoylake. So maybe you might tell us, you're, you're a member there, what, over 30 years, is that right? Yeah, somewhere around that. I think I joined in 92. Um, it was around the same time when the Dowie Par 3 was being rebuilt. So around 92, yes, so just over 30 years. Well, in honour of, uh, I just saw Proctor and Hartzell's uh, new episode of the Duffer's Literary Guide dropped. So in <laughs> honour of the two boys, I'm going to start by reading a bit of Bernardo uh, nice. with regard to uh, Hoylake. So it's from page 112. That the course is either interesting or difficult, all will not agree. But those who disagree most loudly with the statement will, I venture to assert, usually be found to be the worst of players. I call Hoylake a rotten course, there were no bunkers to get over. The fellow I was playing with topped all his tee shots and never got into trouble. Such is a verdict often heard after a first visit to Highlake. The critic then further be asked his opinion of St Andrews, and it will generally be found that he classes St Andrews and Highlake together as the two worst courses he has ever seen. He may forthwith be treated with silent contempt, and his opinions may be ignored. He's effectually written himself down as an ass. What this person says is absolutely true. There are very few bunkers in front of the tee at Hoylake, and the man who tops his tee shot does escape condign punishment more often than he would on a golf course designed in principles of perfect equity. Though short dryers, however, though they do not plunge the culprit waist-high in sand, bring their own penalty by making it practically impossible for him to reach the green in the right number of shots. And we leave it there. Um, I guess in terms of the rules of engagement today and for ease of understanding, we're probably better off sticking with the way the members play the, the holes as opposed to what you're going to see in the championship. Oh, well, it's a tricky one, isn't it? It's still tricky um, for members to try and explain numbers and holes. Um, we, we've, with the coming of the new hole the new par three it's it's changed the routing again so um so not only is it sort of a question of doing maths and adding two or taking two away um for the open routing it's now a, a different routing again as of 2019 or you know start of 2020 so the last few years has been another one to learn as well so it's very tricky i find myself using whole names um it's kind of the only consistent <laughs> way of describing things but it requires somebody to have a little sort of key cheat sheet next to them to cross-check which names correspond to which holes so anyway there we go a challenge exactly well look we'll i'm sure we'll muddle through and yeah. if uh, if if people are wondering we might we potentially will make a mistake and i i certainly will make a mistake but hey uh, <laughs> listen obviously the course was founded in 1969 uh, sorry 1869 in 1969 <laughs> uh there was golf at the rabbit warren prior to that am i correct in saying that Apparently so. I think it had been loosely used for, for the activity of what would become a more formal game of golf. But um, yes, the Rabbit Warren was classic Lynx land. Um, it was mostly used for farmers to, to house their livestock. Um, there was a lot of unused land for livestock, which was prone to flooding down towards the southern end of the course. Um, and these sort of flatter areas around the uh, practice ground now were the, the race course, the hunt club. And the Hunt Club was in existence before golf got there. Um, so, yeah, the Rabbit Warren and the Hunt Club were coexisting for a couple of decades before before golf took off. 
properly. So Chambers and Morris uh, laid out nine holes in 1869 with the further nine added in 1871 where the club achieved its royal designation. Uh, what can you tell us about the early golf course uh, as nine and 18 at Hoylake? So as a nine-hole course, they, um, the, the early pioneers of, of the club who set up the club itself were, um, you know, it was an experiment. It was a risk. It was a gamble. Um, they, they were putting their money in and uh, it wasn't certain whether golf would actually take off in the way they hoped. Um, clearly, it, it, was, it had blossomed nicely in Scotland, but, um, but it wasn't certain that England would have the same appetite for it. Uh, but they certainly loved it. And um, particularly James Muir Dowie, who would become the club's first captain, he was by marriage uh, related to uh, Robert Chambers, the Scotsman and uh, sort of golf man. Um, and he asked Robert Chambers, along with George Morris, who was um, Tom Morris's brother, to come down and lay out nine holes. Um, they, they saw the land and they identified that, that it was a good piece of land for golf. And it, it wouldn't strike you as an amazing piece of land for golf because, of course, you know, Hoylake is kind of synonymous with fairly flat terrain, um, particularly around the race course area. But the benefit was that it wouldn't cost them huge amounts of money to get golf going pretty much straight away. The, the terrain was ready to use that, you know, with, with the help of some, you know, rudimentary um, agricultural tools. Uh, you, could, you could play a good game of golf across this land without having to shift huge amounts of earth or, or basically the obstacle really was uh, rabbit scrapes, which would then become more formalized bunkers in later years. But rabbit scrapes and um, and hoof prints. And there was in the original nine holes, there was one hole that played a long part of the course, just one hole of the nine. And that was the, the course hole, which is now our first hole, except uh, the first iteration of the course had just that single hole playing down the first part of today's fairway. So that was the course hole. But realistically, it wasn't, you know, the, the, the uh, racing wasn't really that much of an issue. It was only there a few, they crossed over by a few years and racing was starting to, to dwindle. The interest was dwindling um, at that site. So I think there were only a, a handful of race meets that, that happened whilst the golf was in existence. It may be useful to just consider how the size of the property changed and expanded over time. So it, the, the use of the dunes was off the cards. Um, anything going out towards what are today's um, sort of beachy side holes were, were just, there was no way it was going to happen. Uh, the land was too poor. The soil was, was awful. And, uh, and the, the rushes at the time, the, the sort of sea rushes were impenetrable. Uh, it was too thick and just basically unusable land. Um, so that was off, off the table. And um, they, they decided because of obviously the popularity and the success of the initial nine holes uh, was rapid. Uh, you know, it took off. More members were trying to join. And um, they first expanded to 12 holes quite quickly, I think, and then 18. Um, the first iteration of 18 holes in 1871 went down the spit of land, which is now our eighth fairway. So if you go, you can imagine the course. If you know it, then you'll stand on the seventh tee, the Dowie hole, and you'll play a par three, then a par five, the eighth, right to the furthest point on the property. And that's right in the south corner. And there's a spit of land there that actually had about seven holes on it. Um, so what happened was the initial nine, they just bolted on holes. They kept the nine and they bolted another nine on going down this bit of land. But the problem they had was the, um, some of the holes were crisscrossing. Uh, so it was a bit of danger uh, about that, but also they, they were very short. They were these sort of 220 yard par fours in a big row. And it was, it really felt like a tack on apparently, you know, they just bolted these holes on to make it 18 holes and it wasn't very good. 
Anyway, later in 1872 and, you know, the following couple of years, they worked on this this routing and managed to uh, to sort of rejig some of the holes of the original nine in order to accommodate a bit of extra space to allow these kind of lacklustre holes that were going down that spit of land to breathe a bit. And they, they just rerouted them and, and something much more coherent came out of it. So that's where the, the royal designation came in because actually that first iteration of 18 wasn't very good, whereas the second one was and was deemed worthy of the Duke of Connaught uh, and his uh, patronage. I've a note here, further to our previous discussion, that internal out of bounds may be something worth talking about before we get on to a plethora of firsts. It's a funky one, and it still comes up in conversation. Obviously, um, it's going to be a topic this open. Um, it's it's an unusual feature to many visiting uh, overseas players, particularly Americans that have a problem with internal out of bounds. Um, the the thing with out of bounds at Hoylake is that most of the out of bounds was due to the fact that it was literally out of bounds. I mean, it wasn't owned by the club. It wasn't leased by the club. Um, so therefore, it was just that was what it was. It was out of bounds. Your ball went over there and, and that was it. And then in time, because the boundaries for the course in the early days, particularly leading up to about 1900, were quite fluid. Um, it certainly didn't look like it does today. You know, none of the houses around the perimeter would have been there. Um, you know, the, the borders were much more expansive than they are today. And we're obviously locked in by housing now, apart from on the beach side, you know, everything's locked in by housing. Uh, but in the old days, it would have been vistas, you know, going over to the hills, over to Wales, up to Grange Hill, up to the Coldy Hills. And then, you know, all over, it wouldn't wouldn't have been, you know, in, encased by housing. So the boundaries are still fluid in the negotiations between Lord Stanley of Alderley, who was the landowner and, and the club. And, uh, you know, the, the, the boundaries were a bit flick flacky. <laughs> we had a couple of holes that no longer exist, um, which are houses. And uh, and in the sort of sale and negotiation of that land, we managed to acquire some other land and built a couple of new holes on it, uh, which are the fifth and the sixth today. Um, but at the time, I should say there was a there was a it was close. It was touch and go whether the club would take a bit of land that went right out to the corner of um, the Wirral. And at the moment, that is a uh, an old people's home and their big garden goes right down to a wall, which is surrounded by uh, rocks. And when the tide comes up, it's a, you know, it's real sort of Turnberry, Pebble Beach style vibes. Um, but sadly, they didn't decide to take that bit of land, even though they drew up two holes to get the, the routing to go out there. Uh, they decided against it. And I think part part of the reason was the, um, the, the quality of the land and the difficulty with which, you know, the difficulty of making it ready for golf. So instead, they took um, the patch of land that is now the fifth and sixth, and it used to be um, Hoylake Rugby Club. And uh, Harold Hilton was captain of Hoylake Rugby Club at the time, would you believe? There you go. I'm assuming you just a, a little bit of, of, of local knowledge, not to have a huge amount of local knowledge in terms of the Merseyside area. I'm assuming that Lord Stanley had something to do with Stanley Park in Liverpool. You could be right. He certainly gives his name to the uh, Stanley Road, which is one of them that you know the course backs onto. But the... Uh, the Stanley, yes, I would imagine where where you see Stanley, it may not have been him, but but certainly his family, uh, the Stanleys. Yeah, so sorry for uh, um, throwing that from 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 left field at you. That's fine. Uh, uh, obviously, <laughs> one thing that struck me in terms of preparing for today was the plethora of firsts, really that that seemed to be associated with uh, the history um, of matches and champion golfers obviously John Ball Harold Hilton Scotland England match which would become the home internationals eventually 
1885 Amateur Championship started by Royal Liverpool Golf Club. Arnold Massey became the first uh, non-British winner of the British Open, as it was at the time. And I think Bobby Jones um, bookended his career, first and last championships won at uh, Royal Liverpool. Pretty spectacular history. The history is quite unbelievable, and that's why I've, I got into it so hard. Um, I moved away for work reasons down to down south to London and um, spent a lot of time on the train going in and out of London to where we lived, which is around Reading area and, and uh, near to those sort of uh, Berkshire, Surrey, Sandbelt. And um, all that time on the train, I was I was spending getting immersed in golf books, history books, mainly the Hoylake series we've got about six or seven really well written books from either members or or you know fans of the course and um and i was just gobbling them up uh, on these train journeys and the the history of the place is really is quite staggering um it, it sits with the likes of prestwick and and even the old course in terms of rich uh, heritage it's quite unbelievable um and i hadn't realized this when i was playing all those years ago you know as first as a junior and then as a, a sort of young adult playing a lot of golf you know lots and lots and lots of golf on this course that you think you know so well and uh, around a clubhouse that's filled with this incredible memorabilia pictures artwork everything else and you you spend all this time around that stuff without truly knowing about it um but yeah being at arm's length and sort of cut off from this from home uh it, it really whet my appetite for the for the history of the place and in the research and sort of rabbit hole that I was going down, uh, it just it took off. The, my my interest was peaked, and every time I came back, you know, occasionally from London, it, the first thing I'd want to do is get down to the course and go and see some sort of footprint of a lost bunker or you know an old green, and just be yeah. It just staggered me. I loved it. The evolution of the place, the the history of you know the the roll call of amazing people that you like you've just listed. Uh, it's it's quite unbelievable. Tell me this: When you were out trying to refine borrow pits and whatever else you found out there, mm. did, did, did your fellow members think you were nuts, or was there other people out helping you find these things? <laughs> I think everybody thinks I'm nuts, and that's fine. Um, Sam Cooper is my partner in crime. We are uh, unashamed, unabashed geeks. Um, we love it. He had uh, got into serious drone photography and surveying, as I said, I said earlier in the in the program. And um, part of that, obviously, as, as any good photographer will will tell you, the best pictures normally come for oh, landscape pictures come from start and end of the day, golden hour. And uh, with Hoylake being such a comparatively flat course from ground level, um, you, you know, you'd assume there's nothing to be seen um, in certain parts of the course because it does feel flat when you're on the ground. But if you send a drone up at, uh, at golden hour with a dipping clear sunlight, then uh, it starts to reveal its stories and character. Uh, you can see loads and loads of features all over the course, like lost bunkers, um, sort of edges of where the old um, racetrack used to be, the, the, the horse racing, um, lost green sites. Um, so these things, while you see them in a camera shot, uh, I could go and confirm what, what we were seeing in that sort of short space of time in just a single photo or, or short video by going to survey data and going and, and sort of shining a, a light across it in 3D. And and the beauty is, of course, in 3D, you can shine a light from any angle. You don't have to wait for the sun to do what you need it to do. Um, so actually having that ability to manipulate where the light is shining across a surface, it really helps show up all these bits of you know character that that we were seeing so yeah it's been a it's been a great um, great journey with Sam we've had a lot of fun 
So one of the things that sort of struck me, obviously, is when the club was founded, first of all, you, you used the, the John Ball's father's hotel as the clubhouse, and that essentially had some club rooms eventually. And uh, then obviously, slightly later on, the, the clubhouse was built. What can you tell us about uh, about the, the hotel as, as the clubhouse and then ultimately the development of the the actual clubhouse that we know today? Well, I think they'd always had the, um, the, the Royal Hotel in mind as a clubhouse because the course was laid out in such a way that it started and finished in front of the Royal Hotel. Uh, I think they were highly acutely aware of the fashion for Victorians to come to the seaside, come and stay at the Royal Hotel. They had a big sweeping garden leading down to the sea. Um, obviously, Victorians were very into this idea of seaside air, you know, take the ozone and things. So it became very popular to go to the seaside. And the, the rail network was bringing people into Hoylake and West Kirby. And, um, and it, it became a popular seaside destination, um, independent of golf, of course, way before that. And then the um, and and golf took off, and they they had in mind that they would use the Royal Hotel as the the clubhouse, and that worked for many years. But it came time in 1895 when the decision was made. We've outgrown the sort of smallish rooms that we've got in the Royal Hotel. It was also quite a an austere, not not particularly attractive building. I mean, you can see old photos of it. It's it's more of a sort of very large, imposing block, <laughs> um, which was demolished in the 50s, I think. But the um, yeah, the new the new uh, clubhouse that we have today was built in 1895 and has been sort of added to and bolted on uh, for, for all the years um, subsequently. But uh, yeah, that was the 1895 move. And at that time, it was part of a, a play to get the Open Championship, which eventually did arrive in 1897, that first one, uh, won by Harold Hilton. Um, but yeah, the, the, the clubhouse was, was a really interesting one because the, the routing, uh, our sort of slight routing headache um, started there. So what was um, the second hole is now our first hole. So the course would have been hole number two and you would have started on our final hole, stand hole. And um, yeah, from then on, they apparently in 1895, when they made the move, uh, the first, I think it was the autumn meeting of that year was played in the current open routing. So start on 17. Um, but apparently it was not adopted. I don't know whether there was a vote. There's no record of that, but it just didn't seem to take hold. So they went to what we have today, which is start on the uh, the course hole, dog leg, out of bounds on the right. So my understanding, obviously, post-World War I, um, Colt and company were invited to uh, take a look at the golf course, particularly Harry Chaplin Colt himself. Um, and you might just bring us through what... He, he would have found uh, prior to uh, in terms of his original survey and what he did in relation to uh, improvements and what precipitated that? Well, the course was changing quite a lot up till 1897 for the first Open. That was, when you look at that old course and the use of the land, it was, it was smart, it was good. Um, there was space where needed, where space was needed uh, and it was a good coherent 18 holes. Um, after that, there were some fashion changes let's say um some of the green sites were the, the locations were dictated by you know um problems of the day like holding water and such so there are quite a few greens that were sited in in depressions so that water would run into them and, and they would stay green and mowable and whatever else uh, and make good putting surfaces but over time that people realized that 
that actually having a green in a, in a depression or lots of greens in depressions created a fairly one-dimensional style of play, which was balls would run and find themselves down in these sort of low areas. And it was becoming a bit too easy, perhaps, if you want to say that. Um, so Harry Colt's remit was uh, multi-faceted. Um, one of the things he was invited to do was have a think about where some of the green sites were, um, particularly the far hole, the eighth, used to have a green site that was um, in, in a depression and balls were feeding easily with modernish equipment, you know, including the Haskell ball, were feeding down into the green too easily in two shots and it was always intended to be a three-shot hole. So they said, is there anything you can do? And he did. Uh, he proposed having a green where it is today, which is up on top of the dune instead of at the base of it. Um, and it has a sort of hog's back fairway leading into it, which rejects balls that are running, you know, too wide of the mark. So, yeah, uh, things like that. So <clears throat> where are the green sites? Um, completely remodel the bunkering, um, because when you look back at pre-Harry Colt pictures, you can see all of the bunkering was it consisted of these long strips. And these long strips would would sit next to a turf wall and would act as a sort of strange hurdle like um, hazard. And the turf walls, we, we call them cops. They were created by um, by land um, renters, you know, land um, people who took parcels of land from um, from Lord Stanley of Alderley and kept their livestock in those. So it was to keep the livestock in um, because they were solid turf walls that were quite tall. You know, they'd be at least waist height. So, you, you, you know, your sheep or whatever else would stay within your, your little area of land. But also it's become apparent that actually they acted as a flood defence in certain uh, conditions because, like I was saying earlier, right down that spit of land where eight is, uh, that used to get flooded quite a lot. Um, so, yeah, it served two purposes. But anyway, these, these turf walls, which were compacted dirt, they'd been dug from the trench which sat next to it. So obviously they came as a pair. You had this sort of trench and then you had the turf wall next to it. And the trenches used to catch blown sand from the beach and it, they acted as a sort of natural uh, bunker. So all over the course, you'd find green sites that were, were situated because of the, the style of the day, the, the Victorian tastes. You'd have green sites that sat in front of a turf wall and a strip bunker. And then you'd have tees situated in front of a strip, you know, strip bunker and a turf wall. So when Bernard Darwin talks about uh, these, these asses who don't get it, um, those were the, the tastes of the day were with this obsession with um, badly struck balls off tee and approaches being punished. Um, you know, you can't be getting away with a thin or a top. You know, you had to hit a clean shot to get over these hurdles. And, you know, they'd realised by this stage that actually that was kind of crap golf. Um, <laughs> you know, the taste had changed. So he, he was invited to get rid of some of those um, to try and bring it into the, the sort of new age. Uh, round off all the, the geometric greens. So he had these huge rectangular greens. The old um, 18th and 16th were, were vast, like huge croquet lawns. And, uh, you know, he was invited to come and round them off, make them more irregular and more appealing to the eye because uh, I think tastes had moved well away from this sort of straight line architecture stuff. So, um, so yeah, among others, it was bunkers. It was get rid of those strip style things in front of tees and greens and um, rethink the, the green sites were the main thing. Um, we had a big problem with the... 11th hole and uh, and the blindness of it that, that was another one blindness get rid of blindness wherever wherever we can so the 11th and 12th hole 11th was a par three uh, and that's the alps hole that had been changed multiple times over the years but the green site had stayed basically where it where it was which was beyond the big dune that now houses the championship tee for 12 and that big dune was just blocking your view of the green which would you know sat just beyond it in a depression and it would just 
uh, accept balls. And it was too random. Um, that's what they said anyway at the time. It was too random. You could hit a, a good shot and end up losing your ball, or you could hit a bad shot and end up right next to the flag. So it was a bit of a lottery, not enough skill involved, too much chance. So they decided get rid of that. So Harry Colt came and built up an entirely new par 3 that we have today. I mean, it's basically the same as it was. The tee's slightly shifted, the bunker configuration shifted and, and such, but, but pretty much it's where it, it was in 1923 when he built it. And, uh, and the 12th hole, which uh, in my opinion is the best hole on the course, um, big dogleg left. But at the time uh, before Harry Colt, the, the teeing ground was, was over on the left-hand side and your drive was blind. So you're playing to a big expansive fairway, but it was completely blind. And then your approach was to an old green, which would have been straight off the back of today's first leg of fairway. And instead, he decided to push the green right up uh, towards the dunes. So you had two new green sites, both sitting close to the to the waterfront. Um, they, in those days, would have been very much closer to the actual water than they are today. But um, since 1930 onwards, we've developed this sort of embryo dune system and marsh, which separates the course from the from the actual beach. So. Yeah, he did majestic things. And I think one of the, the most lamented um, losses of Harry Colt's work was on the, the 17th, the Royal Hole, which used to, um, it was probably the greatest example of flatland architecture you could possibly think of. So smartly laid out uh, on such relatively uninspiring land. You know, you were playing to a set of bunkers on your right hand side. Uh, which was obviously the best place to be to gain access to a green that was uh, benched hard against the the road and the pavement, and it served uh, you know it served there for for just under seventy years until it was deemed too dangerous. Uh, so sadly, the, the green had to be moved away from the the road. And Donald Steele was the man who did that in two thousand ahead of the uh, two thousand and six Open. But no longer is the Harry Colt green there. But those who remember it remember it fondly. I I would say I certainly do. I remember it well. You know, it's it's funny. I mean, I'm just wondering in terms of obviously at the time uh, the tendency uh, for Colt was to, as you say, place new greens and bench them into uh, into ridges and and high spots, if you like. Obviously, traditionally they had been located in areas that would collect water. Um, how was the water supply uh, sort of back then? Was there potable water? Do you know? Uh, what the scenario was was it irrigation ponds that they used to use in terms of keeping uh, keeping water on the greens honestly i don't know for sure i do what i do know is that um certain techniques were were um used it to layer these um to layer up these greens that were on slightly raised areas particularly our tenth hole the d hole um i, I believe the rna and ali Beggs has taken cores from from these greens you know to check the the layering and um i think they did the same at port rush as well and had to relay some of the greens because they'd their lifespan had expired they were they were so ingenious at the time when they were first installed because they enabled the the land to hold just the right amount of water to keep it green and playable without um you know sort of everything draining straight through because it obviously being on a sand dune you know if they'd gone with a normal technique of laying a green as in basically just flattening it and mowing it um then you would have lost all the water and it would have just dried out and it did actually do that to the to the 10th green because that wasn't as far as we know a cult uh, alteration he may have recommended it we don't know he certainly was familiar with hoylake and had played multiple elite amateur tournaments there for many years before um 1913 when that green was uh, built but we don't know for sure what we do know is that it was a bit um uh, unpredictable. Sometimes it would dry out and burn and crisp up, and they'd have to move to a relief green at the bottom of the of the dune. 
But uh, it flick-flacked between that for a few years. So whatever they did in the subsequent years, they managed to get a handle on what actually the green should be composed of in order to hold it and make, make sure the water kept it fresh. Um, so, yeah, lots of different techniques going on around these these sort of raised green areas. Um, but as far as I know, there's some sort of clever layering system where there was like a semi-porous, um, some sort of composite. Yeah, but, I mean, again, here's my inner nerd coming out. Cinder and ash and maybe some tiles were kind of used, perhaps, uh, uh, on occasion. Quite probably. Mm. Some sort of gravelish mix, I think. Yeah, am I correct in assuming, or maybe I'm not, uh, can we attribute the on-course works to Frank's Harris Brothers, or was it the on-course greenkeeper, or who, who carried out the, the works in terms of to the cold plan? It's a good question. We don't know that for sure. It would just be assumption. I, I don't know if there's any actual record or in the in the club minutes of whether it was Colt himself or whether the Harris guys, you know, did did the business. I don't know. Is is the honest answer? I'm not sure. Um, but certainly he came. Colt came back for I think somewhere in the region of 15 years after his first sort of major master plan was submitted in 23. Um, you know, not everything he recommended was was implemented, but certainly over the following 15 years leading up to World War Two, he was coming back to the club. Uh, he definitely installed a, a centerline bunker on the on the 18th. It's no longer centerline. It's no longer there, but you can still see the depression of where it used to be. Uh, it was taken out in 07. Um, it used to be a bunker on the near right side of the drive on 18. And in the old days, the hole played much straighter than it does today. You know, it plays in a much more left-to-right sweeping style dogleg. But in the old days, it was a straightaway hole and there was no fairway bunkering to speak of. It was very bland, a uh, particularly flat area of the course. Um, but he installed a bunker in the uh, in the fairway. It was a centerline bunker and it was in 1933. So we, we know for sure that a decade later, he was still coming back and doing things to the club. What we don't know is exactly when he stopped um, advising. It could be that he even advised post-World War II, but we're not sure. He's not named. Um, so... I understand, obviously, World War Two got in the way. So that's 39 to 45, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, I've got a note here, the school field purchase. When did that take place? Am I am I in the right sort of ballpark from a, uh, no. a date? No. No. <laughs> <laughs> oh, school, field. school field was a, a big assist in getting the open back after the long gap between 67 okay. and 06. So, so for, forget I even asked that question just okay. now. So we're going to come back to it later. Yeah. Come back to okay. it later. So obviously <laughs> what we did have... Go on. Go on. What we did have in, in World War Two is really interesting. We've got some great old pictures of uh, of the course in 1942, I think, where, um, you know, the, the plane, the, whatever it was, the camera plane has done a great flyby of the uh, down the dune dune side and you can see all the old glider posts that were in the uh, fairways because um you know obviously being quite flat in places it made ideal landing or potential landing for german gliders so there were posts bolted into the grounds of certainly three or four of the fairways and also there was a minefield um created in the dunes to you know stop enemy enemy landing craft and when you look at the old pictures it's just a beach you know they, they could easily have come up in a quiet you know, some sort of craft and got out there and just walked into the dunes and, and you're there. But um, yeah, mines were were, were installed. Uh, I, the story goes that occasionally you'd hear a bang and it might have been a sheep <laughs> getting blown up. But, uh, but there we go. Um, but yeah, the, the old pictures are fantastic. You can see those sort of defences and, and everything else there ready to go. Pre-marsh, there was no marsh that had properly taken hold by that stage, uh, but it was coming very, very shortly after the 40s. It really took hold. The embryo dune system ridge uh, was created. So the half moon bay that used to be turned into now is just the marsh. 
And of course, uh, I think the, the, the first hosting of the Open Championship post-World War II at Royal Liverpool was won by an Irishman, Fred yeah. Davy, 1949, Fred Davey. I believe. Um, yeah. Famously, there's a YouTube clip of his um, speech after winning, uh, suggesting that the clean air of the north coast of, of Ireland would do the, the, the claret jug some good. <laughs> good on him. Good lad. Um, yeah, that was, uh, yeah, I think he was quite a popular winner, wasn't he? It um, certainly was. Yeah. The, we have a great old photo that I find really interesting of Fred Daly on the punch bowl hole, uh, so our ninth. And in, in days gone by, it used to have a dune that came right across the front of the green and jutted out so that it made the approach basically blind. Um, what, we, what we wonder is that in the Harry Colt remit where he was you know, invited to come and get rid of blind shots where they existed, um, it's weird that he didn't get rid of that one um, because you can see it quite clearly behind Fred Daly when he's, he's on the green there. Um, and it was taken out in 50, I think 53, Tom Bridges, who was the um, you know, head greenkeeper of the day, uh, was involved in that. And they sliced it in half and we've got what we have today. But at the time, it was very much more a complete punch bowl than it is today. Um, and we don't know why it wasn't taken out. I suspect when I look back at old aerials that actually the fairway was further left um, of where it is today. And actually your view from on the left side would have been clearer of the of the flag and the green than it is today because we've shifted the fairway further to the right and made it straighter. Um, so that's my suspicion anyway. I think it, was, it wasn't it was as much of an issue in, in Colt's time uh, than, it, than it is today. It would be remiss of me not to mention Mr. Five Times. He's also a winner there, Peter Thompson, of course. Absolutely. No, we've got a great roster of winners. It's... Um, you know, the course has, has played host to some great competitions uh, and identified great winners. Um, I hope we get the same this year. I really do. I mean, obviously, the last two have been stellar, um, but I just hope we get a good winner. Um, it does seem to identify classic players. Um, so, yeah, we will see. So, uh, my, my next note with regard to design heritage is uh, Hartree, the, the middle Hartree in 1959. Would that be correct? Correct. Yep. 59. He was invited to put together a master plan. Um, again, like all these master plans, not everything was taken on board, but some was. And this was uh, his big radical change was the um, the merging of the old straight par three, uh, par five uh, third and the short par three fourth. So it was the, the long hole and the cop hole. Those two holes were actually part of the existing nine. Um, so it would have been quite a big change, quite radical to, to have got rid of those two. But um, anyway, they did it and, and it was voted in. And they, he merged the two holes into a single sweeping dogleg that we have today, or almost what we have today. has subsequently been altered by steel in 2000. But the, uh, yeah, big sweeping dogleg left and then a new and entirely new par three installed, which is the, the new hole, the fourth. And that's a great par three, really good. And it was a masterstroke because I think hit the, the thinking went that you needed to get into the dune land earlier in the round because before that you played, you know, seven holes on the bounce that were on the flat. And then you got to the eighth hole where the, the, um, the fairway started to get interesting. But actually his idea was how about we get a par three in the dune land much earlier in the round. So therefore it breaks up this sort of, you know, the landscape sameness. Uh, and it was brilliant. Um, and it still is uh, an excellent hole, that fourth hole. Um, I think it's um, it's slightly overshadowed by by um, Colt's eleventh, uh, but uh, I think not by much. It's a, it's a fabulous song. Just thinking uh, when I was writing these notes, around about that time, the open coverage moved from black and white to colour, and 
if memory serves, uh, at least initially, I guess historically, revetments were used to shore up collapsing bunkers. And perhaps with the advent of coloured TV, the RNA may have decided that actually the contrast that revetments provide the colour TV set gives more interest to the picture. And I guess we think now that um, Lynx Golf is synonymous with revetting. Am I mm. am I down the down the particular correct path there? Is that a cul-de-sac? It's it's a good question, and it's one that I've tried to answer myself, um, and and I've asked many people who are very knowledgeable, and you know, um, I don't think there's any definitive, clear answer about that. There's certainly what the fashion, let's call it a fashion, and not attribute <laughs> the blame or the credit to anybody. Um, the fashion seemed to take hold at uh, Hoylake around that time, as you say. Uh, certainly, the fifties. Um, before the 50s was very few examples that we can see from photography of revetments um, there were a few there might be three or four layers of sod at the top of a, a particularly sort of a vertical sided bunker but but realistically there were no revetments to speak of in the 50s um, I think it was the 60s when it started to come in um, you can see them in the 67 open which was obviously well photographed and documented whereas in the 50s uh, Peter Thompson's win the, there were no revetments to speak of that was De Vincenzo in 67, yeah? De Vincenzo, apparently that's how you pronounce it. De Vincenzo. So, Thank you, pardon. Thank no, that's no, fine. It's not my family, it's fine. <laughs> yeah, look, and, and I, the reason I, I, I mentioned that, as, as, you, as you well know, and as listeners, our regular listeners anyway are aware, uh, CDP have just completed a uh, bunker restoration, for want of a better word, in uh, Royal <laughs> Dublin. So, so bringing the spirit of Harry Colt back uh, which was essentially based on uh, scenarios from the, the late 40s. Um, but one of the comments that sort of jumped out at me on Twitter uh, from a, uh, somebody that was looking at the picture going, that looks like a Parkland bunker. <laughs> um, but funnily enough, it's pretty much the same sort of style that were in existence when uh, Charles Davidson, who was the greenkeeper at the time in 1920, basically built and renovated the golf course post-World War One shooting range. So it's funny that you mentioned mm-hmm. the trend or the fashion, if you like. Um, so for, uh, there's obviously somebody out there that thinks the new bunkers in Royal Dublin look like they should be in a Parkland golf course. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, you know, it, to any kind of untrained eye, why not? You know, your, your frames of reference are probably quite recent and limited, Um you know, you only have to go back a certain distance and look at the old, um, the old links bunkering to see that that by no means was it Parkland in appearance. I think the um, the thing is with revetments, they we know the purpose they served initially. You know, you can see them at the old course pre nineteen hundred way back. Um, the whole point being that it was just caving in and and the the footprint of the bunker was getting bigger, the walls becoming shallower and all that sort of thing. So it was it was to try and combat that, but the. Um, but they basically the revetments allow you to build a bunker anywhere these days. Uh, you know, I, I mean, I can see certain benefits to it. Um, they they appear to be quite. They appear to be f- visually fitting to fairly flat links land. Um, it's different when you've got sort of wild dunes where you can just scrape the face off a dune and, and sort of turn it into a bunker. That's very natural and wild. But when you don't have those dunes on your site, then you know what do you do if you were to have a very rough and ready 
bunker, would it be acceptable to certain eyes these days? People who, you know, quite influential, probably not. Um, so I don't know. I guess all they have to do is take a look at the uh, the road hole bunker over through the years in terms of how rustic yeah. and shaggy the uh, yeah. respective faces were. Yeah. Well, I think difficulty, we know how difficult it can be to be in a small bunker with an incredibly steep face. Um, so expectation around difficulty, new clubs that allow you to bounce a ball out of basically anywhere. Um you know, all of these things are all partly to blame, I would say, for this this sort of trend towards making things incredibly penal. Um, you know, we at Hoylake have have uh, pot bunkers almost everywhere. Uh, we did not used to, and and in fairly recent memory, that wasn't the case. But we do now. They they are a one shot penalty in most cases from fairways. Um, very very difficult. Uh, but that, that's fine. It's become the character of the course and it, it certainly does what it's meant to do, which is terrify you off the tee into not going in bunkers. <laughs> so I suppose that's a big tick in some some regards. Yeah, maybe if we take a look at, obviously there was a, a fallow period where the Open Championship uh, ignored, ignored is probably the wrong word, uh, went down a different avenue perhaps and 39 years passed before the honour of hosting it came back to uh, to Hoylake. Uh, what can you tell us in terms of the works that perhaps preceded the uh, Tiger Woods' win uh, in uh, 06, is that right? Yes, 06. We had uh, there was a lot to do at the course. It wasn't just on the course. Um, it was the, as we know, the the infrastructure and the tenting and the various other things that go on at Opens uh, become very serious requirement. Uh, it wasn't just a question of having a golf course that was capable of identifying good champions. You know, there are plenty of courses that tick that box uh, around the UK. But the um, the infrastructure and the tenting and the and the, the sort of parking um, and the TV. That, you know, the introduction of serious TV coverage meant that there the needed to be somewhere where, you know, proper practice ground could be installed um, and a proper compound for, for TV coverage and, and vans and trucks and everything else could could be situated. Um, so, yeah, the Hoylake what, didn't have that. It just didn't have what was required um, for a long time. And anyway, eventually in the, in the run-up to the 06 Open, um, there, there was some work done on the course by Donald Steele and um, and that involved uh, some rejigging of, bunk- um, rejigging of bunkers and um, reciting of a couple of greens, rebuild of greens. Um, a big one was the 18th, the stand green, um, because at the time we didn't know we were going to play it in the, in the routing that we have today. It was just assumed it would start on one and finish at 18. And 18 was deemed a little lacklustre. Uh, as a finishing hole so the thinking was can we make something more interesting uh, particularly of the green um, so that was done and um, you know we've had that for nearly 25 years uh, it's it's not quite I don't think it quite fits with the rest of the course it's a very flat piece of land over there and uh, and the green is not flat uh, and it looks um, a little man-made in places but uh, it certainly was um, more interesting let's say than the the predecessor uh, but then the decision was taken um, in the run-up to the Open to actually start and finish on uh, 3 and 16, you know, uh, 1 and 16, sorry. So, it was, um, uh, so yeah, I mean, you know, Steele did his thing and, and we managed to acquire the um, the school field. So the club bought the, the Lees school field um, ahead of the 06 Open in order to accommodate the um, uh, TV compound. And obviously from a practice perspective, and I'm, 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 I was remembering Peter Ellis, uh, on coverage in 06 mentioning that 
the municipal, which is down the road and across the road and down the road, if you like, from the from the first tee, and the players were getting ferried from practice fairway to first mm-hmm. tee. Um, obviously, you're 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 fortunate to have the municipal down the road, and no doubt are very grateful to uh, the operators of same for giving up their beloved facility for uh, for the duration of, uh, of of open championships oh very much so it's a council-owned um you know municipal course and uh, it was uh, several fairways were taken over for the for the range also there was some camping there and parking um so it was fundamental to the operation of in 06 and beyond um, sadly, the, the the council in in recent years, throughout COVID and such, uh, decided not to maintain the course and to let it go. So um, we, the club, in the knowledge that this was, you know, crucial to the staging of the Open, um, continued to to mow the course and and keep it in check and and have it playable. So uh, people were able to come and play it as, as standard. <laughs> yeah, the uh, the use of that land was absolutely um, crucial to the to staging the tournament. We we have a practice ground, which is the I sh- should come back to that actually because I didn't answer your question about out of bounds properly earlier. I got distracted. The, oh, Jesus, I, I'm sorry. So our, our out of bounds has been an interesting one. Any any time over the years where we've had internal out of bounds has now been taken away. So uh, sort of the last remaining famous out of bounds was um, internal out of bounds was on the left of the Dowie hole and when that was um, you know removed in the I think it was the 80s it finally was taken out completely and became a sort of no out of bounds hole Um, you know that hole lost its teeth and its interest so it was uh, remodeled in the 90s Um, but yeah basically speaking we took away any uh, internal out of bounds we could and those internal out of bounds were just a legacy of of old holes where we managed to acquire land beyond that boundary but the essence of the hole remained because you needed that out of bounds to keep the, the you know the architecture of that hole relevant Anyway, over time, those things were done away with. And the real lasting um, internal out of bounds is the one we have today, which is our practice ground. And in the very earliest days of the club, that that field was not leased or owned by by the club. Uh, Presumably, it still was home to livestock or whatever else. And um, <clears throat> the, the first and the 16th holes were laid out around this and it was referred to as the enclosure, you know, partly because the racetrack used to run around the outside of it. So this field, this enclosure was was not in the, the, the sort of, you know, didn't wasn't owned by the club. So these holes were laid out around it and we have two of our best flatland architecture holes that, that use that out of bounds as a, as a hazard. Um, and that was from the very, very earliest days in that first um, 1872 uh, update to the 18-hole course. The, um, you know, that, that field remained a field and it was you know it was out of bounds and it always has been um the the interesting thing with that out of bounds is that you know in the earliest days of the club practice was not a thing you know you didn't practice um but over time when practice did become a thing you certainly couldn't practice on the course so whether we would wanted it to be internal out of bounds or not we had nowhere to practice um at all as a club so actually the, the white stake thing you know and that was it there was no choice we couldn't remove it from uh, being out of bounds if we wanted to and if we did then we'd have nowhere to practice at all as a club so we had that decision to make it's like even if we could have made it out, um, not out of bounds we would have nowhere to practice because the rules dictate so so there we go so, so some point after uh, the return to uh, Hoy Lake in 2006 Donald Steele's empire would, would morph into Mackenzie and Ebert uh, I'm not quite sure of the year, so Martin, if you're listening, please forgive me. And Donald, if you're <laughs> listening, please also forgive me. Um, I'm just wondering what uh, works. I think it was probably Mackenzie and Ebert did sort of before uh, 2014. 
as far as I know, um, Martin and Tom um, McKenzie were they were you know working with Donald Steele at that time and were probably quite influential in in some of the changes that were made. Um, post Donald Steele, uh, the, the job was given to Martin Hawtrey, the uh, the youngest of the three generations. Thank you, Bert. and um, sorry, Doctor Hawtrey. <clears throat> There you go. So Martin Hawtrey was, uh, his master plan was submitted in, I think it was 07, shortly after the the Open had gone. The learnings from the Open and the way it was played were sort of, you know, put to use. And um, and there were lots of changes made to things like green um, surrounds. So things like runoffs and uh, and the way it was, things were bunkered. Some bunkers were taken out, some were installed. Uh, certainly bunkers were reshaped. Um, there was a massive amount of reshaping of bunkers. Um I think the the sort of Donald Steele style bunker, um, slightly sort of kidney shaped thing, um, was was deemed um, it was too easy for sand to blow out of them. So we had a bit of a problem with sand blow. So the idea was to by making the bunkers smaller and more potty, uh, it would hold sand better, and then the the surrounding area around the bunker would act in a, in a way that the old bunker used to do and gather balls into the into the sand base. So <clears throat> that was universally carried out across the course, and uh, and installation of uh, man-made um, broken ground was was put in, you know, on left and right of, uh, of drives to try and add some interest to uh, to balls that were missing fairways, you know, try and add some jeopardy. Um, it, you know, th- these days you can't see that broken ground from from ground level. You know, it doesn't look uh, it doesn't look incongruous, particularly from ground level. Uh, when you do actually get up high or you you look at some of the artwork that i've produced you can actually see this broken ground uh, quite clearly you know with some heavy light shone across it so uh, that was all over the course i think there's probably about eight or nine holes that have that broken ground um there so yeah that was a uh, the hawtree uh, mastermind um so obviously in advance of uh the 151st uh, i believe there's been some works done now first of all i'm going to channel my inner david Attenborough with regard to a conversation we had last Saturday. And Spartina grass in particular, which to give it <laughs> its uh, Latin genus, I believe is Sporobolus alterniferus. Pretty invasive <laughs> stuff, I believe. I'll take your word for that um, Latin Wikipedia, name. Wikipedia, anyway, tell me that. <laughs> so there's some, um, there's some debate over... You know the the veracity of this, but there are certainly scientific papers available online, readily available that you can download and read if you're that way inclined. Um, the the D estuary has been silting for hundreds of years uh, in a sort of natural fashion, partly due to the um, lack of traffic, uh, ship traffic that goes down the D towards Chester. Chester was falling out of favour as a as a destination, as a port. Uh, and Liverpool and Birkenhead were were taking off. So the Mersey was becoming more of a, a well-used shipping lane and the D was silting up as a result of lack of use. So, um, you know, the erosion that comes off the, the cliffs of both sides, the North Walian side and also the Wirral side, were silting and mixing with the sand. And these sandbanks were were forming and taking hold. So actually, the, it was a sort of vicious circle, really. The, the silting was um, kicking off and the lack of shipping uh, just meant that it was it was getting faster and faster. Anyway, they canalised the North Wales side of the the, um, the river in order to allow for the occasional ships to get down there safely without getting stranded on sandbanks. But um, it was decided the Wirral side should be left um, because actually there was no sort of shipping industry on that side. So the Wirral side sandbanks were growing and growing. And um, and at that time in 19, I think it was 20, late 20s, 
there was a factory owner down at um, Connors Quay, which is towards the border of England and Wales, down, right down the Deestry. And uh, he, I think he took some advice that was to plant some Spartina grass around his, um, around his uh, factories in order to shore up the defences. And it would knit in and bind together the, uh, the earth and would um, so, you know, save it from high tides. Anyway, in doing so, he accidentally sparked this sort of growth of alien grasses, uh, which took off in relatively quick um, order. So I think over the uh, th- throughout the th- late twenties, thirties, and up to the forties, um, neighbouring village or nearby village Park Gate, which used to be a, a popular um, beachside destination with a very active shipping um, industry, uh, uh, very active fishing industry, uh, was sort of put to bed overnight because the salt marsh uh, grew in, as I say, within the space of probably a decade, and uh, and it completely put it out of action. There was no beach to speak of. Um, there's no no fishing possible. So, yeah, it was quite sad. Um, an accident, I believe. Uh, and, it, and it's just continued to this day and continues to grow. So the, the, the grasses are spread up the, up the estuary naturally with, um, you know, winds and, and tides. And we're, we're seeing quite a lot of growth of this, this grass um, out by Hoylake and at West Kirby Beach. And I think, sadly, there's not a lot we can do about it anymore without something extremely radical, which is not going to be very popular with the um, environmental folk. So uh, I'm not sure there's a lot we can do, really. Yeah, before we get into the Mackenzie and Ebert uh, amendments and revisions and improvements for 2023, something that actually struck me as, as just uh, an interesting historical point. Hoylake was at one point a deep water anchorage for shipping. And for those people that like their Irish history, 1690, prior to setting sail for an appointment with King James II at the Battle of the Boyne, William of Orange set was, was was hanging around uh, Hoylake, and that's uh, that's essentially where he uh, where he set uh, set sail for uh, a date with destiny. I, I have heard that story before. Yes, um, the history of the Wirral is quite an amazing one. You know, this isn't the podcast for it now, but yeah, it's full of amazing history. It used to be the entirety of the Wirral Peninsula was designated a national park by King Charles the First. Would you believe? Wow. Um, so there we go, yeah. And uh, Wallasey down the road has an incredible history. All kinds of juicy pirate action and, and caves and everything else. Brilliant, really cool. Anyway, um, Mr Ebert and uh, Mr Mackenzie uh, did some and have done some works uh, in uh, preparation for the upcoming 151st Open Championship. What can you finally tell us about that? We've come full circle. We have, yeah. Um, so there are quite a few changes made uh, in the winter of 2019 um, and and beyond. We've had a couple of extra changes made in more recent times. Things like bunkers, a couple of bunkers added, which are uh, good additions, I think, for the tournament. Um, the So what have we got? Where do we start? There's um, a couple of greens were moved. So the, the second green, we, um, the road hole it's called, uh, used to be um, a touch bigger than it is today. They sliced off the back of that green and raised the back up. It used to be a front-to-back uh, sloping green, uh, one of the original green sites of the, the nine holes, the first nine holes. And um, the problem we had was that there was a, a maintenance path that came from the, the compound, you know, the greenkeeper's compound and the, the Lee's school where the, um, where the uh, TV compound is going to be. The, it was ferrying people back and forth from Clubhouse and beyond uh, across the, the maintenance lane, uh, the, the sort of tarmac road. And that used to cross uh, two holes, one of them being the second uh, and the other one being the T for the third. 
And the issue was that obviously there was a lot of waiting around and, and danger for people, you know, trying to get across whilst people were playing. So um, so instead, the, the road has been rerouted around the back of that second green and in a more intelligent sort of hugging the uh, perimeter of the property. Um, so part of that involved slicing away some of the back of the, the second green and it's made it a smaller putting surface which is bedded in very nicely you know looks as though it really has blended into the rest of the course but uh, it's it's left a very difficult green it's really tricky um, the runoff at the back is is quite severe and uh, and if you miss the green you're in a bit of, bit of bother um, so I'll be intrigued to see how they play that one uh, it's a kind of shortish par 4 anyway um, it's about as close as we get to a drivable par 4 even though holding that green is going to be nigh on impossible with a driver um, so I'll be really intrigued to see how they play it. Um, you know, there's a lot of aerial game these days, as we know, it's not really a ground game anymore for the pros. So, you know, they'll be sending in these towering wedges, um, but it is a small target and, uh, the runoff at the back is, is very severe. So that'll be interesting. Um, the, the fifth hole, our telegraph hole, um, the, in, in order to install a new back tee, which has to be a certain square footage, um, they, they had to shift that green over to the left by, say, 25 yards. And what they've done is uh, taken um, the essence of the old green and recreated it 25 yards to the left, allowing for this new back tee to be installed for six. But, it, but in the move of the green, actually, it's kept the, the uh, essence of the architecture of the hole, which was that the further right you go off the tee and the closer you hug the bunker on the right and the danger, the better the access you have to a, a sort of back pin, you know, guarded by two fronting bunkers on this green. So, so the hole is, is as difficult, if not more difficult than it always was. So, um, so that's been a, a good addition. That's bedded in also very nicely. Um, but the big change is is the change of the rushes hole, which is now the little eye hole, and that par three has been flipped uh, almost exactly 180 degrees. And uh, and as we referenced at the start of the episode, this showed the um, the routing has changed. So not only the open routing, but the members now have a, a different routing. So we have a par three that that breaks up the final five holes. So we used to have par five four five four four has now become um, par five. Four, three, five, four, four. <laughs> um, well done. There you go. That was a challenge. Uh, I had to sort of close my eyes and see that. But yeah, it's it's been um, it's it's been amazingly well covered. This this new hole, you know, lots and lots of photos. Uh, you know, it's very attractive from the air. It's got the open sand. It's got this um, you know this this uh, mountainous green which sort of pops out. This infinity green raised uh, a good you know sort of ten feet from tee to green, so you can't really see the bottom of the flag or anything. So it's very challenging. Um, the green site is small uh, it's a very short hole if you um, you know if you play a wedge up there which is you know with no wind it's basically a wedge shot um, and, and you can get up there and you can two putt and you say I don't know what the fuss is about but then if you don't hit the green then you see what the fuss is about <laughs> it's very very difficult up and down from anywhere off the green and if there's a, a strong wind then it will undoubtedly cause some uh, some chaos, which uh, you know, as, a, as the second to last hole in the in the open, it could do some damage to somebody's score. We will see. I believe uh, certainly there's going to be two holes on the in the latter stages of the round, maybe fourteen and sixteen. I don't know if they're open hole numbers or members hole numbers. So please forgive me. They're going to be over six hundred yards. I'm just wondering where the prevailing wind is relative to the, the direction of play. So the, it's the 13th and the, the, the 16th for members, uh, the 15th and 18th for the, for the Open. We, yes, the, the teeing areas for both of those holes has been moved back and they have been a sort of a byproduct of the, the change in hole um, par three. So the, the old raised tee... 
for the for the rushes hole the par three has now been is now the green and um and part of that raised area now is home to the 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 new back tee for the 13th the par five which is 600 and pushing 620 and um that is a raised tee uh and i think it plays down the prevailing wind um and I think 16 plays across it, but the approach is down the prevailing wind as well. And and the the 16th tee is six. I think it's just over 610. So um so both are very long holes. I I you know let, let's see what the wind does. But um you know if it's downwind, it probably make absolutely no difference whatsoever to the guys and their club choices and things, because uh, we know where equipment is these days and these athletes and such. So sounds like driver six, aren't right, yeah. Uh, yeah, pretty much rather than driver four. So um yeah. We'll see, but uh, but it's certainly the, it's good fun playing off the big back tee for the uh, for the thirteenth because you're raised up so much and you have a good old heave at it and it's it's wonderful to just see the ball fly in the air. I think architecturally speaking, this is from a geeky point of view. I think the hole plays much more tricky from the from the green tee or the lower tee, um, even though in spite of it being shorter, I think there's some. You know, there's something about not being able to see where your ball is going that that was the sort of essence of Hoylake, really. I think um, you know the, the 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 smart layout of the course and it, and its use of the flat land. I think it benefited from that. You know, putting somebody on edge when you stand on a tee and you can't exactly see what's out in front of you, other than these sort of bunkers and you know various other features. I know we've got yardage book these days, and and everybody knows their distances to the nearest foot, but. Um, I just think there's something about standing on a tee at, at grade where you're playing onto a, a fairway that doesn't really have any, any identifying sort of depth perception. Um, that's removed now with the, the raised tee because you can see everything out in front of you. Um, so, yeah, that's I think that's an interesting one because even with the extra yardage, I think they'd probably find the scoring to be more difficult from a lower tee, uh, shorter and lower. You might just walk me through the obviously the new part three rushes, which is going to play as the 17th uh, for championship play. How circuitous is the walk from 16 Championship Green to play the 17th and then get back to the 18th Championship tee box? It's quite long. It is quite long. Um, but I think, you know, the hole is going to provide the thrills and spills that it's been built to, to, to create. So, um, you know, I think there's a, that's, that's one of those things. Uh, I think given the uh, extent of, of what you've outlined over the course of the past hour or so change appears to be a constant at Royal Liverpool I'm just wondering is there any remaining unused land that's suitable for development on the site and and perhaps if you can speak if there are in fact any future plans to do anything and and again I do appreciate there are probably uh, notional at the moment but I, I guess more interestingly I suppose is there, is there any, any unused land that might be suitable for something is probably a more pertinent to, the, to, to, to this point in time. Uh, I would guess the non-committal version is, um, firstly, never say never. Uh, secondly, there are no plans. Um, uh, thirdly, I would say that uh, unused land on the property is a, is a rare thing, actually. The, um, with all the evolution of the course, I think most of the, most of the property has been used at some stage for golf. Um, the, the, the areas around the Dewland are obviously protected. Um, you, you know, people, are, the, the natural England folk are very careful about what can and can't be um, used for golf. 
So um, so where you have a, a maintained um, fairway tee green, um, there needs to be some sort of trade-off with Natural England in order to make that usable if it sits within a triple SI zone. Um, that is incidentally why um, there are a lot of sand scrape areas around the new hole because um, the green lies within triple SI. So therefore there was uh, there was some trade-off to be done you know the the open sand there is is seen by natural england as a as a, a real positive for you know habitats sand lizards and such so um so there was a deal done if you like um to be able to make a hole within a protected area if certain conditions were met and an opening sand up is seems to be one of those things um so who, who's to say we we could we could have a look at the the unused land down the dune site which is you know great dramatic land for golf and have a think about it that you know the downside would be how would you how would you alter perhaps the existing holes down there which are very well loved uh you know 9 10 11 12 uh, all playing along the coast there are fab holes so you know if there were any changes to be made it wouldn't be necessarily met with huge enthusiasm from everybody because people are very very fond of those holes so who knows is the answer um who knows but but never say never you know, in terms of just the general assessment of, of everything we've 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 heard from you, I mean, in in your mind or to your mind, how do you think the history of Royal Liverpool Golf Club, from a developmental perspective, has informed the planning and development decisions at the golf club? The honest answer is I don't know because my my record of meetings like that doesn't go back far enough. <laughs> my personal memory, um, so I can't really tell you anecdotally. Um, uh, I don't know. It should. It certainly should. It's not like we haven't got good records. We have. We have excellent records. Um, you know, we've got lots of good pictures. Uh, we've certainly got a great um, senior trustee and Anthony Schoen who who wrote um, the evolution of, of Hoy Lake alongside Richard Latham. And um, you know, Anthony is is uh, has a personal memory that goes back you know to the time when he started playing in the fifties. Um, so I, I would guess he's been across um, all of these these periods of change in some capacity, or at least has a memory of them, even if it's secondhand from from a family member or friend. Um, I I would say it should clearly. You know, the history of the club should be considered before any change is made um, or proposed. Uh, I know that Mackenzie and Ebert do excellent um, research into historical uh, archival, um, f- uh, you know, photos and, and comparisons and such. So, um, you know, I, I would imagine ahead of this this round of changes in 2019, there was certainly a lot of historical research done and, and used in conjunction with the proposals made. One thing you've proved today, Joseph, is that you know the golf course site at Highlight pretty well. I'm sure there's going to be some listeners that will be in attendance uh, over the course of the number of days, both practice days and, and championship days at, at Hoylake for the 151st. For the uninitiated, perhaps, that haven't visited the site before, what advice would you proffer to spectators in order to maximise their visual enjoyment at Royal Liverpool? <laughs> um, that's a good question. As in, where is it best to go to? Where should they sit? Judging by the, uh, the the placement of the stands, I think there are two real hotspots. There's a, there's a huge, interesting-looking uh, asymmetrical stand at the back of the the new hole, which is the uh, the par, first par three, and uh, that has a big tall stalk coming off the seating, which gives you uh, a view down about six holes, including the two par threes. So you're behind the fourth green, but you're also behind the tee for 11, the, the Harry Colt Alps hole. So that's a fantastic viewing point. Um, but I think there's no getting away from it. The new hole is going to be seriously 
hot property. I think you're going to have to queue for quite a while to get up there to the top of that stand, which, um, you know, sits right alongside the green for the new hole and gives you a good look down the final tee shot um, down 18. So, yeah, it's those two would be my my, uh, you know, picks, I would say. And uh, one last question. Who is your money on? don't think I want to put money on you know no money or my heart is just massively on Rory obviously because anybody who isn't on Rory doesn't have a heart <laughs> well, he is the defending champion <laughs> he is it would be beyond popular if he won uh, I think not just within the club but all over the world I think that the chap has been through some incredible times of late um, he would be hugely popular there, there are lots of lots of guys in that in, in that sort of camp who you know people would like to see win I think there would be John Rahm would be another popular winner. Um, Tommy? Tommy would be beyond popular. Um, but yeah, I think really, if everybody was very honest, uh, they would say Rory. And did I Matt think. Jordan get through? He did. He did. It was amazing to see. We were following it very closely. I couldn't make it over there for the qualifying at uh, West Lanks, but uh, friends of ours went over. You know, his pals who he grew up playing with at, at Hoylake um, throughout the sort of Colts and junior years, um, they were all over there in support. And uh, and I was watching the leaderboard, refreshing the page every two seconds, trying to get updates. And uh, yeah, he did it. He did it. It was brilliant. Um, he went out and led the first, led after the first round, uh, but it was a very tight leaderboard. My gosh, very, very tight. There was a lot of change, and uh, but he held on and he did the biz. Any final remarks before we get into our two standard finishing questions? <laughs> final remarks. Um, all I would say is that that I, I don't know. I I think the, the Hoy Lake is a as an amazing piece of evolution and uh, a sort of bastion of the game I think is quite remarkable and I'm just over the moon to be a member and, and have been a member so long since I was a kid and for it to be in my blood because um, there's no place quite like it Right so we're on to we have, I haven't visited this particular question in a little while because well I was having repeat guests on so I didn't have the opportunity because I was just going to get the <laughs> same answers I would assume Um in terms of a bucket list, so five courses, there can be less than five courses, it can be more than five courses. If you want to pick 36-hole resorts or anything else or, or locations, I'm happy with that. Um, you can have played them, not played them, I really don't care. You can, you, can, you can interpret the question however you wish. What courses appear on Joe McDonald's bucket list? Well, if you're allowing... Uh, yeah, if you if you're loose on the um, on very, the rules, I'm, I'm very loose. I like it, Shane. I like it. Okay, in which case I'll go wild here. So, uh, a more conventional one um, would be Brancaster at high tide. That's the condition; has to be at high tide. That would be bucket list stuff. I mean, Brancaster is a massive one for me. I absolutely love the place. But but at high tide would be very special. It's not something I've experienced personally yet. But uh, that would be straight in on a on a bucket list item. Uh, have you played Brancaster before? As I said to the panel the last, uh, I'm, I'm about to rectify this particular issue, but the further Good. south I've played in England is Hillside. So Crikey. I have played Brancaster. But I will Crikey be dokey. getting in, let me see, what has he organised? So I've got Woking, uh, St George's Hill with Jasper, which may just be walkabout, New Zealand, uh, West Byfleet, St George's Hill, which may or may not happen. And the adding to Orion. So, but I'm getting nice. nearer Brancaster, but I'm still not down that low. Brancaster is like a fairy tale, absolutely mad, wonderful. 
Um, so yes, do what you can, get over there. Uh, my, my second pick would be hopping in a time machine and going back to uh, Westwood Ho in the 1880s. So you showed me that book before, which is the, the sort of almanac from 1888 to whatever it is. Um, if you have a look at the map that's in there of, of um, rural North Devon, um, it is quite amazing what that place looked like in well Tom Morris's day. Go for it. Um, so, yeah, judging by that map. and, and, and actually, we, Sorry, Joe. What, what I'll actually do is I'll take a picture of this so it's actually in the show notes. Isn't it? Oh, cool. Cool. So w- what I would say is that we're, we're all, I think, very familiar with the famous pictures of the Cape Bunker. Uh, you know, that, that whole sand network with these wonderful sort of wooden boards and ladders and things and, and such. And the famous um, uh, painting. Um, God, I've forgotten his name. It's escaped me. What's his Roundtree. name? Roundtree. Roundtree. Harry Roundtree. So... Uh, so uh, absolutely fabulous uh, painting. But what people don't quite grasp is that the entire site looked like that in the old days, the entire site. So it, it was a wild playground of sand and, and turf. Uh, oh. And I think, yeah. So if you can you see it, you got it. I have it. Yeah. yeah. So part of That's me wants bizarre. to spend spend a couple of weeks trying to recreate this in a, you know, in a 3D model if I could. But it would take a while. Um, but that, but well, yeah, I'm right I mean, saying that there's the island islands of grass, essentially, and the rest yeah. of the sand. Yeah, precisely. Wow, that's a, that's a Quite safari. Amazing. Yeah, precisely. So, uh, you know, we, we, we see open sand on, on Lynx courses becoming more prevalent, but actually that was, the let's call it the original. I mean, that looks like it was, as you say, these islands of turf, which were the playing surfaces, but everything else was just this sort of wild open sand um, stuff. So I, I think I would go back in time in a, in a jiffy there. But whilst I've got the time machine, I would also go back to um, the old course in... Uh, of course, in Andrews. Time machine. Jesus Christ, well, Joe. Uh, you told me the rules were fluid. Yeah, go on, Fi- then, so. Go on, physics. Because I like it. Physics be down. So, um, <laughs> so the, the 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 old course in the late 1800s. So around when Tom Morris was um, revealing the the, the right hand course, if you like, um, I would love to have played not just the old course in reverse, but uh, to to what it is today in the sort of left hand routing. But I would love to have played it in reverse shortly after Morris had had sort of pushed back the um, the course and revealed the the what what are now the fairways for the front nine. Um, because I think what you play in reverse today, um, sure, is a, is a lovely sort of harkening back to the to the old days. But I, the, the course was very, very different in those days. Very different. You know, bunkers were different, open sand in certain places. And, and the way it played would be very, very different to today. So I, I would love to play it in reverse, but in the late 1800s. Are there any photos of that? Um, there's maps. There's maps. You can see how the course, you know, how rough and ready it was before about 1900 um, and these sorts of areas that are referenced in people like Braid's account of how he played in opens and, and things like that. It's it, the, the strategy for certain holes based on these large sort of, you know, areas of sand that were unplayable. Uh, it's really amazing. Um, and if you read, uh, well, anyway, I'll come back to that in a sec. The, the, whilst, yeah, we're, we're on our time machine mission here, and I'm going to go to um, Hoylake in 1935. And the reason 1935 is because we've got an old um, aerial in the club on the wall there, and, uh, and I've studied it quite extensively. And I feel as though I'm very familiar with it from above, uh, but I'd love to see it on the ground. I would love to, to see it. So Hoylake in 35. And then f- uh, finally, I would like to see um, Burkdale, in the mid '30s, just after it had been rebuilt, You're a weirdo. I would, You're I would a weirdo. love to see that. I would love it. Have you seen the uh, the aerials from the '40s? No. 
a Birkdale. Oh my gosh, so cool. Lovely irregular bunkering and these sort of, you know, mad shapes and uh, big expansive fairways and, and things and cool greens. I would love to see Birkdale in the 30s. That I, I have would a be feeling you have staggering. that on your phone, though. Yeah, reference them anytime, anytime in about two seconds, jump straight to it. But yeah, I would love to see those ones. So most of these are, are in the past, but I think Brancaster at high tide would really uh, give me a huge thrill. Okay, is, is that it? Uh, can we have been anything modern now? No. Nothing modern, okay. <laughs> no. Back in your box, Darby. <laughs> there you go, there you go. Okay, well, thank you very much for uh, uh, sharing the time machine voyage with us there. You're the first person to do that. I'm not surprised that you did that, but thank you nonetheless. <laughs> Told um, you I was a geek. Yeah, well, I mean, we, 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 you know, we, we need to fast forward to Star Trek and what they used to do to travel through time. Time yep. becomes a loop and all that sort of stuff. That's the one. Final question relates mm. to two book recommendations. So anybody okay. that has a golfing library out there, uh, what would you suggest they add to it? Uh, I mentioned it before, but the Richard Latham series, of course, Evolutions are fantastic. He's done four, uh, one of which was the Anthony Schoen Hoylake one, which I recommend to all. Uh, it gives you a really good insight to how the course has changed. Um, the other ones in his series are Muirfield, which is equally great, um, Woodall Spa and the uh, County Down. So those four are very much worth your while picking up. And you still can if you go onto Richard Latham's site, Latham Publishing, I think it is. You can buy all four of them from there. Uh, so those are well recommended. And the other one is Evolution of the Old Course by Scott McPherson. And he has just re-released with a load of updates since its initial first outing. Um, I can't remember when he when he released it first. It was sometime around late 90s something. Uh, but anyway, you know, 25 years later, he's released uh, an updated version, which features a couple of my illustrations. I helped him out on some bits and bobs. So uh, if you can pick it up, go for it. Ah, Shane, you, have you got one on the shelf? Have you? Uh, you haven't got the new one yet, have you? I haven't. No. Ah, you need the I'm new one. That's got my pickies in it. <laughs> it's not released yet. So, oh, 07 was the was the was the last oh, seven. publication. There you go. So, fifteen years later. Um, so yeah, fabulous book. I mean, the research that's gone into that is just off the charts. You know, he's poured his heart and soul into that. The uh, speaking of charts, it's filled with charts and records and chronology and uh, lots of great photos and very nicely put together book that that would get my uh, seal of approval. So yeah, he had a podcast there for a while. It seems to have uh, it paused. Maybe it's the kindest thing to say. He must have a job, Shane. <coughs> I've, I've, I've got a fucking job. <laughs> <laughs> so do you. Anyway, I know, I, I, I know. You can't recall what you do at job, though. I mean, no. So. No, I just, you know, whiz around with a mouse and just generally have fun. And, 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 and spam people in their WhatsApp yeah. and lots of stuff. Anyway, yeah. yeah. Thank you for that, by the way. <laughs> um, right, before we let you go, how can listeners keep tabs on you or perhaps make contact should they require the services of a digital imagery specialist? Um, send me an email please uh, joe j-o-e at joemcdgolf.com that would be very nice always up for a chat Joe McDonald it's been my absolute pleasure to pick your brain with regard to historical development of Oilek many thanks for affording the time and continued success all that you do and best wishes specifically to the wider Oilek Golf membership in hosting the 151st Open Championships over the coming weeks go easy lovely thanks Shane bye bye Many thanks for tuning in. 
As usual, you can find us online at firmandfast.golf or on Twitter at firmandfastgolf. Please continue to like, subscribe and comment. It really is appreciated. Until the next time, happy golfing.